Hi guys, I'm Dana Al-Hanbali and this is Something to Consider. We are joined today by a special guest who left an impression on me during a workshop he gave as part of EO about scaling up your business. Now, the original interview for this was done via Zoom because our guest is based in London and in an attempt to try to maintain the level of production quality that we started with on this show, I wanted to at least record the introduction and ending in the same way to sort of bookend the interview. And we ran into a few technical difficulties to begin with while recording. So, I mean, it's just the nature of working with this type of technology, I suppose. It happens. But I hope you enjoy the content nonetheless and find something to consider. Some of you might actually recognize him as the professor of entrepreneurship at the London Business School or institutions like Harvard Business School or the Stanford Graduate School of Business. He has been teaching for over 30 years and has even been an entrepreneur himself at some point. He's the author of two textbooks, four best-selling books on entrepreneurship, more than 50 case studies, and more than 50 articles published in a variety of outlets, including Harvard Business Review, the MIT Sloan Management Review, and the Wall Street Journal. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. John Mullins to the show. John, thank you for joining us today on Something to Consider. Thank you, Donna. The pleasure is mine. Great to see you. Great to see you too. I'm so happy to have you on the show today. One of the things that really stood out to me when we first met was your ability to really translate complex business ideas into simplified, accessible, and practical concepts. You said something that really resonated me when we met. You said, insights are accumulated wisdom through life. And that's kind of where I want to start. Um, what do we need to know about you to really get some context about how you became interested in entrepreneurship and venture capital firms? I had no idea that I was ever going to be an entrepreneur. In fact, when I was in business school, now a very long time ago at Stanford, believe it or not, I never, ever heard the word entrepreneur or entrepreneurship at Stanford all those years ago. Uh, in those years, you did an MBA, you joined some big company. So I joined a retailing business in Chicago called Jewel. I worked there for about seven years and ended up having lunch in California one day with a classmate of mine from B School who had joined a little company on the West Coast called The Gap. Uh, Jack was looking for talent, uh, needed people who understood the retailing world. And I was working in retailing, albeit grocery retailing. And Jack said, gee, why don't you move to San Francisco and join us at Gap? So I did that. Gap was a highly entrepreneurial company in those days, growing very, very fast. Uh, and I had a ball. I, I really learned the fun and the challenge and the, the joy of growing companies very quickly at Gap. Uh, a few years later, I left Gap. Uh, when it got a little bigger and it seemed to be a little slower moving. And I said, well, maybe I've learned enough to do this on my own. So I did two startups. One of those went public. That one failed. I learned a lot from that one. Uh, wow. And by the time I'd been in, uh, in retailing 20 years, I said, that's enough in retailing. I need to do something else. Hence, becoming a professor, which I am today. Wow. Do you think the fact that you were an entrepreneur, though, and went through, I mean, that's an incredible milestone, first of all, to take your company public. Um, do you think that kind of experience and background gave you a unique perspective that maybe made you a better teacher? Or do you think being a teacher or professor or teaching entrepreneurship is more of an innate skill that you always had? Well, I think there are two parts to that question. Unquestionably, I am a more effective teacher having done what I teach right? I didn't learn it in the book. I learned it in the real world. Uh, so there's no question that that's true. 
But secondly, I think uh, I discovered after midlife that teaching was actually in my genes. I come from a family of educators. Uh, two, two grandparents were professors. And, you know, I think it was in there and I didn't know it was in there. And now it's come out. Well, that's amazing. Was there anything else that you wanted to be? one point when I was a teenager, I was a pretty good trumpet player. And I said, maybe I should be a jazz musician. Uh, fortunately, I, 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 uh, I, did, I did something a little more uh, useful and productive and I'm glad I did. <laughs> so I'm going to jump right into one of the concepts that you had discussed in a workshop that I had attended that had to do very specifically with scaling up. Um, because I think one of the most interesting things that, or let's say concepts that you challenge very much was this idea that cash is king and ROI isn't necessarily what's most important in order to make a successful business. Can you explain why and help us understand the relationship between entrepreneurship and capital? Yeah, so so uh, cash is the lifeblood of any entrepreneurial business. The day you run out of it is a really hard day. I know because I've been there. Uh, no entrepreneur wants to get to that day, and it's really tough to get past that day if you if you get there or get close. So ca cash is the lifeblood. Um, but cash is not profit. So you can have a profitable business that's growing very fast, but because maybe you have to buy more inventory, or maybe your customers don't pay you on you know when when they buy, and you you're carrying their their debtors, as we call them in the UK, or accounts receivable, as we call them in the US. You know those those balances are are ballooning, and it may be that you have a profitable business, but it's one that's running out of cash. Uh, and far too many entrepreneurs don't really understand the difference between profit and cash. Interesting, um, especially because when I see a lot of a lot of my clients are in the tech. Uh, business. So a big part of what they prioritize when they're initially launching their business, um, really close to, you know, they're still in kind of the proof of concept stage. And one of the first things that they end up prioritizing is going and generating, you know, generating money from investors right away, sometimes a little bit too soon, and not knowing exactly what to do when that when that, you know, when that money when they've been able to acquire that money. So it's interesting that you made that connection. What do you think drove you to build conversations around questioning what you call conventional wisdom and challenging mindsets that have track records of working historically? Um, why, why are you considered someone that has consistently been challenging those things? You know, I don't know why that is, Donna. I, I, I think I'm just a person who asks a lot of questions. So I grew up that way as a kid. I was that way through university. Uh, I was that way at Gap and with my startups. You know, I, I, I think the way you learn is you ask questions. And when you get questions, sometimes when you ask questions, sometimes you discover that, that the world isn't quite the way most people think it is. And you say, well, wait a second, you know, what's black maybe isn't black. Maybe it's white. Maybe it's the other way around. And uh, if you keep asking questions, you know, that's one of the things that we academics learn to do and, and try to do all the time. Uh, you learn some interesting things that I've, I've been very fortunate to be, to be on and, and have been on a very interesting learning journey. Okay. What do you think defines success as an entrepreneur? Is it always about massive growth and scaling up? No, I, I believe that success is a very individual uh, thing. 
some people want to build a, a, a fast-growing company and ride it like a rocket ship to the moon. But other people are very happy with a lifestyle business that puts food on the table, supports their family, employs some people. Uh, nothing wrong with that either. So I, I don't think there's a single definition of success. I think it's what the entrepreneur wants. But that said, it's really important for the entrepreneur to understand what they want because if they don't know where they want to go, you know, then any road will take them there or maybe it won't. True. But doesn't that kind of contradict uh, the ambition of what it takes to be an entrepreneur? Isn't being an entrepreneur very much having something to do with the drive of wanting to create something, create something that could last? Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily have to be something huge that lasts. So there, mm -hmm. there are a ton of wonderful family businesses that create a very nice lifestyle for the owner uh, and last a very long time. But they only grow modestly because that's what the entrepreneur wants to do. Uh, I, 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 I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's great. Yeah. That's actually, not for everybody, of course. Yeah, I agree with you. It's interesting, though, because I had this debate with someone recently. A kind of the counter argument here was, you know, why would someone invest so much time in building something that isn't necessarily going to scale or get bigger or is franchisable. That means that the business is not technically, according to the general uh, accepted standard of the world, a word successful. So we had a little bit of a debate around that. But I think that when it comes to success, especially in the entrepreneurial world, um, the entrepreneur also defines that what success means for them. And I think that's really important. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, one of my daughters is an artist, has been an artist really since she was a kid. And she she's passionate about uh, reusing and repurposing materials of one kind or another. Uh, and her main business today is to make jewelry. She calls it Opry Ski Jewelry. That's the name of her website. She makes jewelry out of skis. So she gets yeah. old skis that aren't good enough to ski on anymore, but are very colorful. Most skis have really colorful, uh, you know, characteristics. And she sli slices them up into little tiny pieces. Uh, and, and the result is a wonderful line of jewelry that she sells. Now, can she scale up that business? Unlikely. Does she want to scale up that business? No, she does not. Does she love the creativity of figuring out new styles and, you know, triangles and short ones and long ones and, and so on and getting people to help her to be able to make more stuff? She loves it. Well, I think that's just great. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's more than enough. Jumping into another kind of way of looking at it, though, why do you think most entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs' businesses tend to fail? I, I think there are a couple of reasons why so many fail. And as we know from the data, most fail before too long. I think there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that people think entrepreneurship, sort of the mythology is that entrepreneurship is a solo sport, that you're going to go it alone and, and battle the long odds. Actually, being an entrepreneur and playing to win is almost always a team sport. So you really need to find a team uh, and that means a complementary team, others who bring something to the table that you lack, that together, uh, one plus one makes three or four. So that's one reason many fail. I think perhaps the biggest reason is that what they offer to the marketplace isn't something that the marketplace wants to buy. 
there, there, there's a saying in the tech world, you know, build it and they will come. Well, all too often they don't come, right? You build it and it turns out not to be something that anybody wants to buy. And if that's what happens, you're going to fail. And I think that's the principal cause of, of why, why so many businesses fail. You know, they're just not different from what's already out there or they don't solve a problem for the customer. Uh, and, uh, you know, Peter Drucker, the great management theorist in the 20th century, said if you don't have a customer, you probably don't have a business either. You need to have a customer. Interesting. What about if I asked you if... Does an entrepreneur necessarily need to know where he need, where he's going in order to be a good entrepreneur? Or is that something that, you know, it's very much part of the journey and they don't necessarily need to have a set guiding light or a goal that they are working towards? You know, they don't know what that end line is. What do you think of that? Yeah, that's that's a great question, uh, Donna. And it, and it lies at the heart of my new book, Break the Rules. Uh, I opened the book with the story of an entrepreneur named Linda Weinman. Linda was a, uh, an art teacher, uh, and perhaps we could say an aspiring entrepreneur, uh, teaching the latest graphic design tools back uh, many years ago when Photoshop and Illustrator were brand new. And uh, she, as these new tools came out, she said, oh boy, I need to teach these to my students. And she went looking for a book in the library where she was teaching in California and couldn't find a book. And she said, well, maybe I better write the book. Well, one thing has led to another. I don't think Linda ever had a goal of building a, a, an extraordinarily large company. I think what she did is she had a passion for solving her students' problems, and that was learning how to use these tools. And when opportunities uh, appeared in front of her, uh, when a door opened, she walked through it. Well, the, the long story short is over about a 20-some year period, she went from that raw startup teaching people to use Photoshop uh, at the Art College of Pasadena to selling her business to LinkedIn in 2015 for 1.5 billion US dollars. Well, you know, di did she have that vision at the, at the beginning? No, I don't think so. Uh, but it worked out because she took advantage of opportunities that came along as she traveled the path. And I think that's quite common among entrepreneurs. There isn't really a plan. Sometimes there is. Sometimes there's a vision and they and and they know what that vision is and they're hell-bent on achieving it and and they do it. But that's not the only path. That definitely resonates with me. And I would definitely agree with you that entrepreneurs do traditionally respond to opportunity more than necessarily having a set vision of where they're going to end up. But that also begs another question. You know, especially for people that have um, that tried being the employee in the corporate world and want to shift into um, entrepreneurship, a lot of them invest in actually going back to school, which I always found interesting because, it, you know, you're teaching entrepreneurship. So I'm, 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 I wonder, are your students already entrepreneurs and do they come to school to learn how to be entrepreneurs or is it about being entrepreneurial in their own organizations? Because it almost does feel counterintuitive. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, it's almost like a mindset. It's it's something that you kind of have in you. It's it's the way that you react to the world. Can you can you go to school and, and learn how to become one? 
Well, people ask us all the time at Atlanta Business School, where I work, you know, can you teach people to be entrepreneurs? Uh, and and our answer is basically this. We say we can't just take a random person walk, walking by on the sidewalk in front of the school, pick them up, bring them inside, drop them in the LBS secret sauce, and put them back on the sidewalk, and magically they become an entrepreneur. No, I don't think we can do that. But for those who have the the comfort with some ambiguity in their lives, which is not everybody, and for those who are willing to be around some risk, which is part and parcel of the entrepreneurial world, we can help them be better equipped. The The challenges of, of uh, managing an entrepreneurial career are known. Uh, they're repeated time and time again. And so what we can do, I think, is make people better equipped to deal with the uncertainty, deal with the challenges, raise capital on better terms, uh, be better at understanding customers, uh, be better at managing, hiring, retaining people, all, all that stuff. We can, we can give them tools to give them a better chance to fight the long odds. I think that's what we could do. Um, and, and we find today that large number of students come to London Business School explicitly to find a partner find an idea or a problem to solve, find some money, and when they get their MBA, go be an entrepreneur. Who would have thought? You know, it's not a 30 years in a gold watch world world anymore. Mm. It's interesting that you say that because I'm actually noticing that it starts much younger. Um, a lot of, uh, so I work in the creative often, industry. Often it does, yeah. It does, especially this new generation that's coming out. You know, we refer to them as the Gen Z generation, but you know, they're, they're so ambitious and ready to take on uh, becoming entrepreneurs from the very beginning, from the day that they graduate with just their bachelors. Um, and it's it's interesting because they also kind of start the journey or at least start a conversation around the journey with this assumption that all it takes to be an entrepreneur or start a business is a great idea and some money. So, and we both know that's absolutely not true. It takes a lot more than that. Um, what do you think it takes to be an entrepreneur? Well, it, it, at the most fundamental level, what it takes to, to start and potentially have the chance to grow in an entrepreneurial business is to find a problem that some customer has, uh, ideally some very narrowly targeted group of customers so that they, that little group has the same set of needs, but needs that are not being well met by whatever's out there today. If you can find a customer or a group of customers with an unmet need and you can solve that unmet need better than anybody else can, you're on your way and then you grow from there. So, you know, getting started isn't the hard part. The hard part is what comes after the startup. Can you, can you then make it systematic? Can you hire people to help it grow? Can you widen that initial narrow target market? Uh, and, and uh, reach a bigger one. All those are where, where the real challenges lie in entrepreneurship. And, and those are all things that we can help people learn. So what advice would you give someone who is just starting out? I'd give a couple of pieces of advice. Um, one, I would say don't look for an idea. Ideas are a dime a dozen. Look for a problem to solve. As Vinod Khosla, the famous Silicon Valley investor, once said, nobody will pay you to solve a non-problem. You know, find a big problem, and then you have a big opportunity. So that's number one. And the second advice I'd give is don't go it alone. Find somebody who you'd love to work with, uh, who 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 complements the skills that you have, 
but shares a, a common mindset uh, and go forward as a team. Those are the two things I tell my students. I think that's great advice. Do you think there's a cap on on entrepreneurship in a specific market or or you know within a specific population? Like, is there such a thing? Um, whether it be in your research or observation, is there such a thing as having too many entrepreneurs as part of a society? There certainly isn't any evidence that that's the case. You know, there are different kinds of entrepreneurs. There are the necessity-driven ones in the third world, the developing world, where they have to become entrepreneurs because there's no employment around. And if they want to eat and they want their family to eat, they have to do something on their own. If you look in the more developed world, uh, and the world of opportunity-focused entrepreneurship, as, as we might call it. Um, if you look in Cali California, something like one in four or five people at any time in California, adults in California, are part of an entrepreneurial team, starting their own business, backing an entrepreneurial business. So, so very large numbers of Californians are actively engaged in the entrepreneurial world. In other parts of the world, that fraction is much smaller, but we don't seem to have a problem in California with too many of them. Uh, you know, it's created a vibrant economy and, and uh, has taught us lots of things about how you do this. So no, I don't think there's a cap or a limit. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and in fact, today we need more of it because the people who create virtually all of the world's net new jobs, doesn't matter what country you look at, are entrepreneurs leading fast-growing companies. That's where the jobs get created. They don't cre get created in startups because for every startup that's new, there's another one down the road that's just failed. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't happen in big uh, multinational companies either because they're, they are continually substituting capital for labor as fast as they can, right? They want machines to do, do the work, not people, because machines show up, machines don't complain, uh, you know, and so on. Uh, so it's these entrepreneurs leading fast-growing companies that are going to create our, our collective future. And quite frankly, we need more of them just about everywhere in the world. It's interesting because the way that you framed it, you kind of you know alluded to this, this very true fact that you know society has different roles to play within the space of entrepreneurship, whether it be the entrepreneur himself, uh, the supplier to the entrepreneur, the partners that they work with, the customers, but also the people funding the businesses um, that are supporting them in different ways. Because I do think that entrepreneurs can change the way that we live, the way we work. Um, I mean, revolutions have, have started and reforms have started because of the ideas that come from entrepreneurs. But I do wonder sometimes, especially in you know, with a lot of the youth uh, that, that are a lot more ambitious coming out of school, you know, is there is there a way to kind of, you know, filter out or set this set the stage when it comes to expectations of how they contribute, whether it be, you know, not every person with, you know, a great idea necessarily has to run their own business. A lot of the time that contribution can come in different ways. And I think a big challenge that we face is finding people that are happy to be part of something versus always wanting to, wanting to start something themselves. That's something that we see a lot of here. I think you make a very good point, Donna. And it's one of the reasons that I spent so much time writing my, my newest book, Break the Rules. Uh, it's the first of my book, 
products that's targeted at an audience considerably wider than entrepreneurs. Uh, and in particular, I want people in big companies to understand that there are ways they can get people to become more entrepreneurial. In fact, many times leaders today wish their people would be more entrepreneurial. They want them to think out of the box and they want them to break some rules and they want them to to have initiative to, to find new opportunities. Well, one of the one of the things that that break the rules kind of breaks down is these six mindsets that entrepreneurs have that are fundamentally different than most other successful business people. And we can teach those mindsets to anybody. They, they don't have to be in, in getting a startup going on their own. They could be working in a startup. They could be working in a, in a big company. They could be the leader of that big company. Who knows? But these, these six mindsets are what distinguish entrepreneurs from other successful business people. And, and I think they are in large part what makes the world go around today. It's interesting because you talk about it as the six mindsets, which, which I, I read about in the book, but Leaders struggle to motivate or incentivize their teams. We know that. And as, a, as an entrepreneur, that's, you know, I can completely relate to that. Um, but what about when it comes to the actual culture of an internal team that is being built? How does that sort of mindset come into play when it comes to building a company culture? Well, as, as Jim Collins wrote a long time ago, you've got to get the right people on the bus. Uh, and that really comes comes down to company culture. You, you need to empower people, not just tell them what to do. Um, and and people who want to be told what to do are, are not going to take your your business forward into into new uh, avenues of growth. You need people who are going to look for those opportunities because they're at the coalface where the business meets its its markets. And you need people to say, look, there's an opportunity here. Here's an unmet, unmet, unmet need that I'm hearing from my customers. Why don't we go there? Um, I, that's, that's what big companies would like their people to do. But unfortunately, many of the people with those kind of mindsets uh, choose not to work in big companies. They choose to work for a fast-growing startup or, or do a startup on their own. So it's a big challenge for big companies today. It is. And it's, a it's lot. It's a culture issue, as you say. Yeah, it's a culture it is, issue. It is a culture issue. And I think it's one that the leaders try to solve by almost um, almost taking on the role of having to uh, having to assume specific characteristics um, that they want their that they want their team to almost copy or mirror. And what ends up happening is that the responsibility of carrying a lot of things out lies on the shoulders of the leader. So I guess my next question is, how can business leaders balance kind of the their them being agile and adaptable while still maintaining some sort of vision or strategy for their business? Yeah, it's a big challenge. And, and the fact is that most uh, big companies, especially companies that are traded on public stock exchange, don't like risk. The executives don't like risk because they get paid largely on the basis of their consistent quarter-to-quarter -quarter earnings, and they don't want to do anything that's going to tarnish the ability to deliver on those earnings. And that means they don't want to do risky new stuff that might reinvent the business, but they don't want to do that. Uh, entrepreneurs, on the other hand, live in a world of risk. 
and they've learned how to manage risk and mitigate risk and offload risk to others. And, and, and that's what entrepreneurs are so good at. You know, there's a myth that entrepreneurs are big risk takers. The entrepreneurs I know aren't big risk takers. They're good risk managers. They mitigate it. They offload it. They, they recognize it for what it is and find ways to avoid it. They, they do things like asking for the cash up front uh, before they invest in something that's new. If the customer is willing to pay up front, like Michael Dell did when he was 19 years old in his dorm room at the University of Texas. He said, you know, I'm, I'm going to sell personal computers and I'll sell you exactly the computer you want, but you have to pay me before, you know, you have to pay me when you order the computer. And he used that money to then buy the parts, assemble a computer and deliver the computer. Well, that model has continued fundamentally the same throughout Dell's history. Steve Jobs, on the other hand, uh, building a computer company at about the same time in the same industry said, well, I'm going to go raise a bunch of venture capital. And, and uh, you know, he, he round after round after round, he got fired for a while. Then he came back, as we all know. But if you compare those two journeys, the Steve Jobs journey and the Michael Dell journey, well, first of all, we'd be happy any of us to be either of them, right? But if you compare those two journeys, the one who create who captured the lion's share of the value created was not Steve Jobs, because he only owned a single digit portion of the business. Eventually, it was Michael Dell, hands down, because Michael Dell figured out that you asked for the customer to pay you before you build a computer, before you invest, before you hire people, all that kind of stuff. It's one of the six mindsets, and it's a key uh, to mitigating risk. And big companies could do that, but typically they don't. What are the six mindsets? So the first one is what I call yes, we can. Uh, and and it kind of runs counter to what big companies are taught today so or have been ta taught for 40 or 50 years. So big companies are supposed to stick to, to their knitting, right? Uh, figure out what your core competencies are, invest in them, make them more robust. And uh, if somebody comes along, some customer comes along and says, says, gee, could you do this other thing that lies outside your competencies? You're supposed to say, no, we don't do that here. We, we focus on, our, on what we know how to do. Entrepreneurs, on the other hand, when somebody comes along and says, could you do something um, that maybe lies outside their comfort zone and outside their current set of competencies, they go, yeah, we can do that. And then they go back to their office or their garage and say, holy cow, how the hell am I going to deliver on that? You know, who, who would have thought that Jeff Bezos at Amazon, a distributor of books and music uh, DVDs and CDs at that time, could build a hardware product that became known as the Kindle. Well, that was an audacious thing to do. They had no hardware expertise whatsoever. And yet that single move reinvented Amazon. So that's, that's number one, saying yes, we can when a customer asks you for something that, that looks promising, even though you have no idea how you're going to deliver. That's number one. The second one is what I call think narrow, not broad. So in big companies today, you're supposed to only do big stuff that's going to move the needle. Big companies don't want to bother with little stuff, right? It's got to, it's got to be a very large market and a, and a product with a lot of potential. But for entrepreneurs, uh, that's, that's not where you start. You start with a little tiny target market like Nike did, targeting elite distance runners, people who could run it nearly a four minute mile. Well, how, how large a target mark is, is that? You know, there aren't many four minute milers in the world. 
But once they learn to uh, to design shoes with athletes' help to do exactly what that particular athlete needed, and distance runners needed different shoes, the, sh- the shoes weren't good enough for them. Um, once you learn to do that, and once you learn to source the shoes in Asia, and once you learn to get athletes and, and uh, running coaches to endorse those shoes, and you start winning medals with those shoes, guess what? All the rest of the runners want to wear those shoes too. And once you've learned all of that, then let's do tennis with John McEnroe. Let's do basketball with Michael Jordan. And the, the rest is history. So thinking narrowly about your target market, not broadly, is a fundamental tenet that most entrepreneurs understand, but very few big businesses uh, behave that way. And then kind of related to that, um, you want to solve a customer problem, not just come up with an idea. So back to the Nike story, the problem the runners had is that distance runners run miles and miles and miles, many more miles than a sprinter runs, and they run them on dirt roads and country paths, and they're always stepping on sticks and rocks, maybe some rodent holes. So they get a lot of shin sprint, shin splints. Uh, they sprain their ankles a lot. And and Phil Knight and his, his co-founder, Bill Bowerman, said, we need shoes with a wider footbread, and we need shoes with a little more cushioning to, to uh, mitigate against those those genuine problems that runners had viscerally, right? They were very real problems. Well, entrepreneurs start with a problem. They don't start with a product. Big companies, on the other hand, just keep fooling around with the products. So we, we used to have just one kind of Coca-Cola, right? And then there was New Coke. That, that didn't work out very well. And then there was Diet Coke. That worked pretty well. There's Coke Zero now. That's worked pretty well. There was Coke Natural. No, that one didn't work well either. But it's just fiddling around with the product. Come on, that's not real innovation, right? Come on, give me a break. Um, So those are the first three. The fourth one is what I call never ask permission, beg forgiveness later. So if we think about Uber and the founding of Uber in San Francisco a long time ago now, had Uber had its founders, Garrett Camp and Travis Kalanick, ask the San Francisco regulators, do you think it would be okay if we start a taxi company that doesn't have any taxis? Like, I, I don't think Uber would exist today, nor would Kareem or Grab or the rest of the imitators. We might not even have a gig economy today. Uh, so you don't ask permission. When, when, the, when the regulatory, I'm not su- suggesting you should break the law, and, and there are a lot of things that Uber did that I don't condone. But when the regulatory environment is uncertain or ambiguous, or when when the the rules are in conflict with one another, then maybe you should just get started. And once you get a get a good start and have a lot of customers on your side, it's going to be pretty hard to get to uh, have the regulators shut you down. So permission and entrepreneurs are kind of like oil and water. You know, permission isn't a, a thing that entrepreneurs want to do. The next one is what I call ask for the cash and ride the float. And that's what Elon Musk has done throughout the, the uh, journey at Tesla. So when, when Musk joined the founding team, they already sort of had a vision that was to build a really fancy, expensive car, but in very small quantities, use that money to build a somewhat cheaper car, but build more of them. And eventually they'd get to where they, they had a, a more mass market car. Uh, that, that would be at a lower price point. Well, Musk joined the team and he said, well, let's go see if we can sell some cars. And so they did a little road show in California. And in three weeks, they managed to sell 100 Tesla Roadsters. They hadn't built any yet. 
for $100,000 a piece. Do the math, Donna. That's $10 million U.S. dollars in the bank, cash on the barrel head, uh, with which to then do the engineering, get rolling, and start building the first Tesla Roadsters. Well, that principle has carried Tesla throughout its journey. So when they introduced the Model 3 in 2016, the same thing happened. They said, we're going to introduce this new, almost mass market car, and half a million consumers put down $1,000 each deposit. That math adds up to half a billion U.S. dollars in the bank before the very first Model 3 even hit the assembly line. Well, asking for the cash and then riding the float on that cash to do all the other things you have to do to start and grow your business is what entrepreneurs do to mitigate a lot of the risk. Uh, could other companies do that? Sure, they could. But again, often they don't. The next one that I often talk about is what I call beg, borrow, but please don't steal. So in big companies today, when there's something new to be done, the basic idea, we teach it in B-Schools and Finance 101, is you figure out what, what the investment needs to be to, to open the new store, build a factory, build a prototype, whatever it is. And then you forecast the cash flows, and then and you bring those cash flows back to the present, and you ask yourself, is the return on investment sufficient to make that investment in the, in the first place? Well, most entrepreneurs I know don't think about ROI when they're doing something new. They figure out, well, let's see, I've got, I've got this problem I'd like to solve here, um, as Linda Weinman did. Partway through her journey in, in building lynda.com, she said, well, gee, um, we, we, she and her husband uh, decided they wanted to move uh, to an idyllic resort community called o Ojai, California, from the L.A. area. And they said, I wonder if people would, uh, would fly to Ojai to, to take one of your courses, Linda. So they... Uh, they, they don't want, didn't want to build a training center because who knows if the idea is going to work. So they, they borrowed the high school computer lab during spring break to try the first course, right? And, and if you can get proof of concept by borrowing the assets rather than investing in them, then you can go ahead and maybe you invest later. And of course, that worked out pretty well. And eventually, they, they, you know, they did more and more in-person training courses in Ohio and, and elsewhere. And eventually, then they went online, and that's where the value got created. But the, the principle of borrowing the assets you need when you're starting something new instead of investing in those assets is a wonderful way to get started. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting, though, because in, in, in their own unique way, each of these principles break the rules, which you know lends itself quite well to your title. Um, but of all these case studies that you've seen, John, you know, you've been you've been working with students and entrepreneurs and venture capitalists for years. And I feel like, you know, especially when when we looked at case studies in our workshop, there were so many different ways that CEOs developed the strategies of how they were going to grow their own businesses. But what do you think makes a good CEO? Like, what are the, I think a better question to ask, not just what makes a good CEO, what do investors want to see in a CEO? Why, what would, what would make an investor happy to invest with a company based on the CEO that they are meeting? A good friend of mine uh, named Carlos Espinal runs a business in London called Seed Camp. And Seed Camp is the largest seed investor 
in Europe today. So Carlos and his team have looked at hundreds, literally hundreds of deals. And Carlos's view, and I share his view, is there two things that at least early stage investors look for. That is before everything's you know super proven. Number one is, is the ability to communicate so well that you can create in the investor community fear of missing out. Gee, if I don't do this deal, I'm going to miss something really big here. So that's that comes down to kind of communication skills. And that's what enabled Adam Newman to raise all that money for WeWork, which was uh, in some ways kind of a flawed idea. But he was really good at creating FOMO. The second way you do it is with metrics. So you get started perhaps by uh, borrowing the assets you need, perhaps by asking for the customer's cash up front, and you begin to develop some customer traction. And then you have proof to an investor, actually, look, this is working. Here are my metrics. And this is the growth rate I'm getting, albeit we're, we're still very small. But look at these dots. And when I talk to uh, the most able uh, angel investors I know, what they think about is investing not in a point of time that you might call a dot. They want to see a bunch of dots that turn into a line, right? So you look at where the business is here, and then you look a couple of months later, and oh, it's gone to there. And then a couple of months later, it's gone to there. Well, that progress, the, the metrics that prove you're really on, onto something, that's the second thing that early stage investors want to see. Uh, ideally, you find both of those in the same team, but sometimes just one, sometimes the other. If you have neither of those, then it's going to be really hard to, to raise any money. I have another question uh, that has to do with industry versus market research. And this was something I really learned um, when I was working, when I first started working in branding. So my question is, when we start growing and evolving our business, um, is market data enough? And is it wise to make decisions based solely on market data? Steve Jobs had a view on that. Uh, Steve's view was that uh, all market research is really going to tell you is what customers think they want to buy. But they aren't going to be able to tell you about things that don't yet exist because they don't exist. So Steve's view was that market research isn't going to be very helpful to you in thinking up new things that customers are going to want to buy. Would they want to buy iTunes? Would they want an iPod? Would they want a, uh, you know, a smartphone as opposed to an old dumb phone that we used to have? All, all those things would be very difficult to research in any definitive way. Uh, so Jobs' view is uh, build, build, a, build a prototype, get some feedback on it, and if you're on the right track, the customers will tell you you're on the right track. And then you go from there. That's not to say that there isn't a role for marketing research sometimes, um, but I don't think it's going to help you with the, the really uh, path-breaking new ideas. A lot of the time when we work with a lot of our clients, uh, they base a lot of their decisions on, especially if they're doing a great job and they are successful, a lot of their decisions are also very much based on insights from existing customers. So the priority almost starts to become, um, you know, how do we retain what we have versus, you know, how do we evolve into a broader customer set? And a lot of that has to do with kind of feeding on insights from their existing customers versus 
looking at behaviors beyond that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's only going to take us so far, right? Yeah, um, I agree. One of my colleagues, one of, one of my colleagues at London Business School, uh, Helen Edwards, has just written a new book that argues that the real potential growth is going to come from what she calls the marginal customers, the far out people that, that behave in ways uh, that seem like anathema to the mainstream markets. And she tells the story of how vegan or veganism became cool. Well, that was a very long journey. Uh, but today there are very large numbers of vegans and all the major food companies have to now cater to vegans. But who, who would have thought that previously marginal behavior would have become mainstream? Well, it has. Uh, and her book is called From Marginal to Mainstream. And it's all about how do we understand these marginal behaviors that are out there today that might be the next vegan? How do you assess them? How do you figure out which ones might be worth you know, learning more about and which ones have no hope? It's a really interesting thesis. But that's really where the, the uh, quantum growth is going to come from, I think. It's going to come from outside the mainstream. And that means you have to go beyond your current customer group to understand where that's going to be. John, you've published four books. Uh, the first one, The New Business Road Test. Second one, Getting to Plan B. I love that title. Third, The Customer-Funded Business. And four, Break the Rules, the Six Counter-Conventional Mindsets of Entrepreneurs that Can Help Anyone Change the World. Which of the four books has been your favorite and why? I don't know that I have a favorite. Each of those books was written because I found a problem in the marketplace. So I'm kind of true to my entrepreneurial ethos, right? Uh, break the rules. Uh, well, let's go back to the first one. Uh, the New Business Road Test, I wrote, uh, because there was nothing back at the turn of the millennium when, when dot, the dot-com world was happening. And there were always all these crazy ideas that everybody had for new internet-based businesses. But nobody knew really how to assess one idea from another and say, well, is this one any good or is that one good? And there's nothing in the literature to tell entrepreneurs how to do that very important task. So I said, there needs to, to be some research here and maybe it'll turn into a book. And it did. So so that book exists because of that problem, and it remains uh, the go-to uh, source for how entrepreneurs should assess opportunities. So is, is that my favorite? Maybe in some sense it is because it was kind of my first love. You know, it's the first book, and it's, it's the one that set the tone for the rest. But then uh, doing getting to Plan B with Randy Commissar was a real treat because Randy and I were, were thinking about the phrase business model. And that phrase was on everybody's lips around 2005, 6, 7, 8. But we didn't think anybody really knew what they meant when they, when they used those words. And I didn't know Randy at the time, but a good friend of mine at Stanford named Tom Byers let me come to California and use an office at Stanford for a few weeks to do some research, talk to some people in the ecosystem out there, and see if I could get a better sense of this uh, what this phrase business model was all about. One of the people I met was Randy, who had also been thinking about the same thing, but he'd been thinking about it from a prospect, from from a process perspective. How do you get from plan A that probably isn't going to work 
to a plan B that is. And I was thinking about trying to better understand sort of intellectually what goes into a business model. There's the revenue model, the operating model, the working capital model, the investment model, and the gross margin model. All those pieces have to come together for a business to work. Well, that was kind of my perspective on it. Randy had a process perspective, and we realized that together, those two sets of ideas might turn out to be really helpful for for entrepreneurs who were struggling with their initial idea that wasn't panning out, because most of the time, the first idea doesn't pan out. You You typically have to pivot. So there's a special place in my heart for that one, because I wrote it with Randy, who's a wonderful guy. And then the third one, the the customer-funded business, kind of came out of getting to plan B because I discovered uh, a company called Costco in the U.S. It's a big, uh, huge, huge store that sells literally everything. Uh, And the very unique thing about Costco is you have to pay to shop in the store. Well, whoever heard of such an idea, right? How on earth would somebody convince somebody else that in order to come into my store, you have to pay? Crazy idea. Well, Guess what? Uh, Costco charges, I think it's now $60 in the US, and I think it's 50 pounds in the UK to be a member. And until you pay for a membership, you, you can't shop in the store. Well, those membership fees, I discovered, constituted two thirds of Costco's operating profit year, wow. in, year out. Just the membership fees. Wow. Well, if you're Target or Kmart or Marks and Spencer in the UK, how the hell do you compete with somebody who's got that economic advantage? They don't have to make hardly any money on the retailing business, right? Because they've already made two thirds of their profit. Impossible to compete with them. Uh, and, and so I asked myself, well, gee, that's pretty interesting. But I wonder if there are other ways to get the customer to fund a business other than asking for membership fees up front. And I discovered there were five of those ways. So that became the customer-funded business. And then Break the Rules uh, was a a product, I think, of the last 20 years of my field research, all these case studies I've written on entrepreneurs. And and it was a result of, 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 of my discomfort with the fact that the academic world had been unable to find what the differences were between entrepreneurs and other successful business people. So I I know in my heart and I see in my classrooms and workshops that entrepreneurs indeed are different uh, different than other business people, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And the academic world hadn't found any differences either. So I went back to all that field research and I said, now I think I've found the difference. It's their mindsets, it's these six ways that, that entrepreneurs react to things that come their way um, and, and, and those mindsets predetermine how they react to, the, to those things that come their way, opportunities, as we call them in the entrepreneurial world. And, and, and that's the difference. So each of the, each of the books, I don't, I don't have a favorite, but each of them was, was written in response to a particular need that I saw in the marketplace. And that makes it uh, both worthwhile and an awful lot of fun to write a book. Thank you for that that overview. I mean, each one, as you said, carries with it a unique perspective that I think could be useful to entrepreneurs in different ways. But there's one point that resonates the most with me, and it's something that you mentioned quite a lot in your talks, as well as previous interviews that I've watched. And it's this idea that 
you, I don't want to say you push for it, but you do always talk about the customers funding your company, becoming your VC versus going out and getting a VC. And I think our listeners would benefit from your perspective on this. Can you talk to us a little bit about why sometimes that's a better option when you want to scale your company, letting your customers actually fund it versus a VC? Yeah, I'm, I'm really passionate about that. Um, and and I, think, I think I should start with a caveat. I am a limited partner in a venture capital fund, so I understand VC from that point of view. I raised five rounds of capital for one of my businesses, so I understand raising ven- venture capital from the entrepreneur's side of the table. So it's not that I'm anti-VC. In fact, I think it plays a very important role, but most people access it at what I think is the wrong time. So if we're talking about uh, raising capital early when things are risky and unproven, there's some real drawbacks with that. Number one, if you're spending time trying to raise money, anybody who's done that will tell you that's a full-time job. Well, if that's what you're doing with your time, what are you not doing with your time? You're not out there meeting customers. You're not really understanding their needs and honing the original idea that you have that probably isn't quite right and getting it to be right. So there's there's a huge amount of distraction. Uh, and by the way, that distraction continues for a long time because once you've raised check number one, where does your attention turn? Well, where am I going to get check number two, right? Absolutely. Uh, so, so distraction is a big issue. That's one. Uh, second, when you raise money early, there's a lot of risk around. You know, you may have technology risk still. You may have market risk. Certainly you have execution risk. So the, uh, the investor needs to be compensated to take all that risk. And that means they're going to need a bigger stake in your business than would be the case if you raise money later. So there's that. And then a third piece of it is the baggage that comes with raising capital. So for very good reasons, investors, be they angels or venture capital investors who are, who are investing other people's money, by the way, uh, have a job to do. It's to, it's to maximize the return on the investment that where they put that capital. And because um, it's a risky environment in which to invest, they have term sheets and shareholders agreements that protect them from the downside. Well, I can guarantee every single entrepreneur that you are not going to like the shareholders agreement. You just won't like it. There's a lot in there. They can fire you. They can dilute your seats on the board. They can do all kinds of things because it's their job to protect the downside on that capital. So for all those reasons, I think raising capital early is a bad idea. Much better to get a customer to give you that money. And by the way, if a customer gives you money, doesn't that suggest you're on the right track, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Much much more hospitable and agreeable source than a venture capitalist early. Later on, when it's working, if you need to put some fuel in the tank, perhaps, yeah, then raising capital makes sense. But that's after you've proven that you've got customer traction, after you've proven you've got a team that can deliver. It's after all those things. Before that, get your money from your customer, please. I I, I love, I actually love that. Um, I And I agree with you 100%. I feel like it's, it's, it's one, how I grew my own business, but also um, how I always, how I would always recommend going about it with my own clients as well. 
Which brings to light another question. Can a business sustain their competitive advantage over time, do you think? Is it realistic in today's world? Well, can you sustain competitive advantage forever? Probably not. You know, patents only last 17 years, and that's a long time. But most competitive advantage lasts a year or two or three tops. Uh, now, do you want to have that competitive advantage? Yes, you do. And and if you're able to build advantage that gets you a couple of years' time, then maybe you can build some more sources of competitive advantage. Maybe it's your brand. Maybe it's the superior way you serve your customers. And you can buy some more competitive advantage over time. But abs absolutely, it's it's essential to do that. And, and too many entrepreneurs, I think, build what I call a me-too business. Well, there are a lot of people selling Cokes to kids in China. Well, if I can sell Coke to kids in China and get 1% of the market, I too will be rich. I don't think we ought to think that way. We, we ought to think about, as I said before, solving a customer problem, uh, do that for a very narrow target market, and, and then grow over time. And, and if you do that, you will have sustainable competitive advantage in that narrow target market, at least for some period of time. And, and then you build other strengths and other capabilities that will, will help you down the road. Um, there was an interview that you gave uh, to the Wall Street Journal, I think. And I love what you said. You framed uh, your answer to a question differently. And I had never thought about this before. Um, and it was a question around what makes a good investor for an entrepreneur? So as an entrepreneur, you know, especially when I'm in the phase where I want to, let's say, raise money and scale my business, what are the things I need to look for in an investor that isn't necessarily limited to the money that they're going to be giving my business? I think the big thing you want is trust. I think you want an investor who trusts you to lead the business, to, to build it, to make good decisions, uh, to lead it ethically, morally, to hire good people, do all those kinds of things. Um, and, if, and if you can build a trusted relationship with an investor who believes you're the person to take it forward and will, will let you do that, then I think that's the kind of an investor you want. You, what you don't want is an investor who, who, uh, who, who wants to kind of run the show. That's not their invest. That's not their job. It's frankly not what they're good at. Uh, but some people in all walks of life are control freaks, and you probably don't want to take money from a control freak. Yeah, I agree. How do we stay informed about late the latest trends and developments in the world of, you know, venture capitalists? Like, is there is there a place that you know our listeners can go to to learn more about what they're looking for, especially when it comes to specific regions that they're in? Well, I think VC is of sufficient interest to the media today that there's all kinds of stuff we can tune into. You know, there there are there are websites full of venture capital information. There are organizations, at least in developed markets, that gather data and publish that data on trends in VC. That's less likely to be true in emerging markets such as the Middle East. Um, so, you know, there's, there's in, in, this, uh, in this day and age, there's tons of information online, but there's also tons of information you get by talking to fellow entrepreneurs, right? So when, when, I, when I am working with a company that wants to raise some capital, 
uh, one of the things I ask them to do if they have a prospective investor in mind is go talk to the CEOs of the other companies that that investor has funded and get a sense for whether whether that's been a good relationship. Does, does that investor actually add any value or does it interfere? Uh, does he or she uh, contribute to opening doors or, or other things that might add value? Uh, or or do they not? I, I think there's an awful lot that can be learned from your fellow entrepreneurs. Nice. I have a final question for you. Uh, from the experience that um, you've had, I think one of the unique things about you as well is that you know you have such a different perspective on entrepreneurship because you've also been able to see how it's evolved over the past three or sorry, thirty years. Um, what can you tell us about how the mindset of entrepreneurship has evolved in comparison to what it was like 20 years ago, even 10 years ago? Um, what insights can you give us around that? That's a good question, Donna. I, I think fundamentally, entrepreneurs today are pretty much like they were uh, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. They want to solve problems. They want to make the world, or at least their small corner of the world, a better place. You know, I think of Elon Musk and Tesla. I think you could argue that Musk has single-handedly made electric vehicles relevant in most of the world. Mm. Now, were there other EVs? Yeah, there were. But were they relevant? Well, maybe not so much, but Tesla has done that. Um, so so I, think, I think that part about entrepreneurs... Is unchanging and is not likely to change in the next generation. I think what particularly encourages me that has changed is is entrepreneurs are now more likely to think about a wider stakeholder group than perhaps they were a decade or two ago. So they're thinking about the impact they can have on the environment. They're thinking about uh, the kind of employees they're gonna they're gonna hire and the culture they build so they become a great place to work. Uh, they think about the damage they they won't do to the planet and the benefits they could bring to the planet. I think I think there's much more of that open kind of thinking among entrepreneurs today than there was then. And in fact, each year I take a group of London Business School students to Sao Paulo and we do a deep dive immersion into the very vibrant uh, triple bottom line community there of entrepreneurs. Triple bottom line meaning profit people and planet and in in sao paulo that's a beautiful place to study that just because of the nature of brazil and and how it is and our students come away with uh, admiration for these entrepreneurs that are trying to do wonderful things build great businesses make some money but also uh, serve people well and make the planet uh, a better place to live so I, I think that's a change very cool I love that. John, usually at the end of every show, I ask my guest to pose a question to me based on the topics that we covered in the episodes, giving me maybe something to consider. Is there a question that you'd like to pose to me? Mm, that's a great question, Donna. I, I think I, I would ask that you think about your future guests and find a way to invite guests that can inspire this current generation of entrepreneurs to build not just for-profit ventures, but triple P ventures, ventures that, yes, make a profit, 
uh, second, serve people well, both customers and employees and suppliers alike. And third, make the planet a better place. The more of those inspiring speakers you could get on your show, uh, I think the better off the world would be. I love that. John, thank you so much for your time. You've been so generous with us. We've actually gone over over time, so I really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. You've given me so much to consider between your workshops, your books, this conversation. So I imagine that the listeners will feel the same way. If um, anyone wants to reach out to you or be in, be in touch or is interested to know more about workshops that you give, uh, can you give us some insight as to how people can connect to you? I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm at London Business School. My email is jmullins at london.edu. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, John. And to all our listeners, I want to thank you for the privilege of your time. If you enjoyed the episode, please follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to it as it really helps us grow. Any and all support and feedback is welcome and appreciated. Please do feel free to reach out and share what resonated most. We love hearing from you. In the meantime, I hope you found something to consider.